this month's True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks is joined by Aurelien Mottier, CEO and co-founder of Operatics, a sales acceleration company. In their conversation, Aurelien delves into his journey from engineer to salesman, the growth of Operatics, and the key business values he attributes to his success. Aurelian, really delighted and excited to have you on True Connections podcast today. And thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. There's so much to talk to you about, and it's quite difficult to narrow it down. And I think what's been so impressive, Aurelian, about your story and your journey is, I guess, the sheer breadth of your experience when you think about the switch in your career a little bit early on, your move of countries to come to the UK through to developing a real high growth business in different locations and moving in from being an engineer to sales development and a pipeline business as you've now established at Operatics. But really, just to pick up in terms of your route into business developments and sales, you're an engineer by background. What was it that made you switch across? Well, that's a great question, Alan. And you are right, the journey is made from lots of failure and things that I tried didn't work out and moved on. In fact, from a young age, probably when I was six, I was expelled from school. So I was kind of the first break in, in my life. And then my parents, who are quite humble and modest from a background perspective, had to put me through private education. And I did quite well in private education. And I turned, I changed, and I became a little bit more academic. And my mom saw that in me. And because we did not have a lot of academic people in the family, she really pushed me. And I guess, you know, the stereotype was... <laughs> To be successful, you have to be a doctor or an engineer. So I just did that. I tried to pursue the dream that my mum put in my head and qualified as an engineer. Went to work for an engineer for six months. Absolutely hated it. So decided to go back to a business school because I realized from my young years of being involved in different associations and stuff like that, I actually like to lead. I like to be in contact of people. I like to do something meaningful. I like to be with others. I like to develop others. I like to help others. And you can't really do that when you are an engineer programming automaton. So really, I decided to make the switch, which was pretty terrible because, I mean, my mom being French is very Latin and that was an interesting time at home to deal with, but probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And then you're right, last part of my business school, if you will, I was due to work for companies. It's kind of an alternance type of placement. So you do two months in a company, one month at school, two months in a company, and that's the last year, basically, of your study. And I was working for Philips in Paris, the mobile infotainment division of Philips. So back then, we were doing MP3 players that you put around your neck. So it's kind of revealing my age a little bit. But I could not speak any English. I was academically relatively good, math, physics, history, everything. I was pretty good, but English I'd never really cared about, to be completely honest with you. And my VP marketing just told me about the massive opportunity I was missing to not speak another language, and particularly English. So she supported me to move to the UK, and she basically told me, go. And that's how I landed in Cambridge, which was a new start. So I had to start again. My first job was cleaning offices at five o'clock in the morning. So as you do in Cambridge, I was getting onto my bike and cleaning offices in the morning. Then I got a job as a receptionist in a restaurant called Chez Gerard, which is a very French. So that's probably why they got me there. I could not speak any English, but I was the receptionist of the place, believe it or not. And six months later, I was fluent in English, but decided that instead of going back to Paris, I should try something different. 
And back then, Alan, I was reading a lot of autobiography. And I remember one in particular with Warren Buffett, where, you know, he was speaking about door-to-door selling and telemarketing and recruitment and all those kind of cutthroat, sharpen your teeth type of industries. And in all, all those autobiographies, what I realized is that people were kind of describing the role of picking up the phone or selling door-to-door as the most challenging things they've ever done in their life, but also something that made them as the person they are now. And that's why I decided to try it. So yeah, Alan, so after reading those autobiographies, and it got me quite curious about, it's almost for me like joining the Navy SEAL. You want to do the tough bit first when you are young and you've got the energy and experience the tough stuff. And guess what? I've been doing that for 17 years. Now I've been in the same industries for 17 years, but that's how I started. And when you came across the UK, as you say, not being able to speak a word of English, having to find your own way in both searching for work and learning a new language, do you have a fearless nature to you? I don't know. Uh, feels, uh, it would feel a little bit, uh, well, not really humble to say yes. I don't think it's fearless. I think I like to fix things and I like to try new things. I express fear. In fact, you know, <laughs> being an entrepreneur is, is, yeah, I'm quite fearful. I don't know what I'm doing sometimes, I must admit. So you've got to have fear, but I think you've got to be able to control fear. And, and it's about how you channel it into positive energy. I've been very independent from a young age. So as I mentioned earlier on, you know, my parents are coming from a very modest background. So my mum did not really work. She was cleaning houses in the street and looking after kids and making a little bit of money there. And then my dad was a, yeah, he was because he retired now. He was a warehouse worker working in a cigarette factory. My dad's dream would probably have been for me to work in that cigarette factory as well. That would have been perfect for the family. It would have been like, I'm done, I've got a job, it's perfect. His dad used to work in that factory as well. So it would have been a good result for him. But for me, I want to push a little bit more. And you know, even when I was a kid, I was selling flowers of my local bakery just because I wanted to get the same pair of sneakers or shoes that my friends would have. And obviously, being in a private school in France, which usually are Catholic school, you tend to be around people who have a little bit of money or come from a good background. They are there for a choice. Not a lot of them are there because they don't have any other school that would accept them, like me. So... I had to find a way to compete. I had to find a way to get on with it, if you will. And coming to the UK, I actually find it very interesting. I actually loved it. Started from the bottom. It was daunting, but I think people have been very nice. And it's something that I had to do. I just kind of realized that, of course, it was some fear in the process. But when you've got to do something, there is no point being concerned about it. You just got to find a way to do it. And that's what happened. And then the rest is history. But yeah, coming back to your question, am I fearless? Well, maybe I am. I don't know. I would not say that I am. I think I've just channeled my fear into something more positive and don't call it fear, basically. And Aurelian, you had a couple of roles in businesses throughout, and it led you to establish Operatics. Tell us a little bit about the business. How is it different and what led you to establishing the firm? Sure. So I joined a company in 2004. 2006, so actually in the middle, called Optima Consulting Partners. The CEO of Optima Consulting Partners was not someone that I knew to start with, but as I mentioned to you previously, Optima was a company that really focused on doing pipeline generation, lead generation for B2B software companies. So basically, that was my first real job in the UK, if you will. I was probably completely overqualified for that job. But as I explained, I wanted to really start from the bottom and experience that sort of greedy telemarketing, put my sleeves up and see if I'm good at it, and trying to replicate the Warren Buffett and whatever other autobiography I read. 
And I met a gentleman called Graham Kerm, who was my CEO there. And in fact, I think six months within the job, Graham sacked me because I was late one morning. But he took me back the next day. And then we decided that I would get promoted to head of sales in Europe. So I was the first French person joining the company and really helping my business unit in going towards sales in Europe. And I think within 12 months, 14 months from being promoted as the head of sales in Europe, I had a team of 12 people working for me. And it all happened very organically. I was invited in Paris by one of my clients. And I remember that evening because I had planned with some of my friends. And that client was like, look, forget about your plan. You come with me. I will introduce you my friends. And basically, the room was full of VP sales, VP marketing, general manager for Europe. And he was doing the selling for me. He was explaining them what I was doing for him and his team. And I came back with five contracts. I had no idea how to do a contract, but I knew that some very large organization back then in the technology space wanted to work with us. They wanted me to replicate what I was doing with him for them. So I came back to the UK with that. And that's kind of what got me started in that relationship with Graham, who was my CEO. So I got much closer to him, we had to work together. He probably saw something in me. And to be honest with you, he was probably my first mentor and the person that really helped me to develop my sales career. So, and I became his number two. Do you still speak with Graham? Uh, I'll get onto that in a minute. <laughs> I don't know if we want. So I became his number two. And then in 2008, Graham told me, look, I've been doing what I've been doing for eight years. I would like you to support me in selling the company. And what I need you to do is to get some very large clients coming in. So maybe not large contract, but getting the big players. So the IBM, back then CA technology was a big technology in the space. Oracle, Microsoft, HP, tried to get them as clients. And I've just done that as a sales director. I brought all those clients in one way or another. And we eventually sold the business in 2010 to a Nasdaq-listed company called Rainmaker Systems, who was based out of Campbell in the Bay Area. Further to the acquisition, I think six months later, Graham decided to part ways and left the organization. But we had, uh, I think it was two or three years earn out that we had to complete in order to collect the rest of the payment. I mean, for me, I had pretty much no options, no shares in the business. So... I did it for the pride versus doing it for a financial return. But I became the general manager of Rainmaker in Europe. And I think I became the general manager not because the CEO of Rainmaker saw something magical in me, just because Graham left and he had no one else to do it. So I became that person very organically and did the on out in 14 months. So we actually did very, very well. So well that Rainmaker ended up calling me and asked me to leave the business because I was doing too well, apparently, and costing them too much money, which was very interesting. So it was a very American thing to do to a UK employee. But cut a long story short, we did part way at the end of 2011, in December 2011. And I started operatics with Graham in 2012. So we started together. Graham was supposed to help us for the first three years, four years. He ended up doing pretty much five years with us. And we bought him out in 2016 out of Operatics. So that's kind of the journey as to why Operatics and where it's kind of coming from. But if you zoom back in the why Operatics at the beginning of 2012, I think the market changed drastically in our space. You know, the concept of telemarketing is very much obsolete. You know, people picking up the phones through an Excel spreadsheet and trying to speak to people. I mean, that doesn't work. What you need to do is to have a little bit more of an integrated approach, an account-based type of approach. 
And it's also about playbook and understanding of the end user versus an understanding of your product and what you are selling. And that's really what we wanted to bring to the market. And I guess, you know, when I look back now, it's 250 people in the business, $25 million of run rate revenue. I guess it was probably the right things to do at the right time. Aurelien, you've spoken before about the sales life cycle in technology companies in particular. I guess Operatics is quite focused on IT and tech businesses. What is it that makes it different from others in terms of that life cycle? Yeah, that's a great question, Alan. What you have in B2B software, you've got some very interesting relationship happening. So you've got people coming up with ideas. They usually start, they bootstrap. Then you have some VC coming. There is lots of valuation in the assets of software. But then when you are selling it, it's intangible. It's not something that you can touch. So if I was selling hardware, let's say a laptop or a box, I could send you that box, Alan. You plug it in your infrastructure. You like it, you keep it, and you stop paying me. You don't like it, you send it back to me. When you sell software, and particularly enterprise software, you're selling something that is supposed to work, may not have worked somewhere else when it's the first few deals, and it's going to cost you a couple of million, including professional services and everything to make it work. So you're kind of selling the dream. So that's what we call solution selling. And the reason why we are relevant as an organization in solution selling is because there is a lot of margin in software. Okay, So I think the cost of developing a software, if you look at what Microsoft sells, is probably... 5% of the license price, if that. Okay. Obviously, there is lots of other costs coming, but there is a lot of software, which means that software vendors, software entrepreneurs, software CEOs are not too concerned about paying for support, getting people to support them in accelerating pipeline and accelerating revenue because there is margin to play with. Okay. So the cost of acquisition can be quite high in that space. And that's how we justify companies like Operatics to be involved in accelerating sales cycles, increasing average deal value in that space. Yeah, yeah. And are there many other people doing a similar type of thing? Ah, I'd like to say no. I mean, of course, when it comes to pipeline generation, we have competitors, but it's an interesting niche. It's a niche full of specialists, okay? So it's a little bit like the watch market. I don't know if you like watches, but you've got all sorts of people. You have the Rolex of this world, then you've got... Audemars Piguet and Patek Philippe, which is kind of the brands that are established. Are they really doing a lot of innovation right now? Maybe not, but you know, they are kind of doing their stuff and you know who they are. And I guess we are the newcomer in that space where people we try new materials. We're trying to do new things. We call it the sales lab where we try new technology on a consistent basis. So people like us, you probably have a couple of other companies like us in Europe. You probably have two or three in the US. I think Operatics is quite unique because we've got a worldwide coverage. And that's a value that clients tend to like because they want consistency across territory. So there are some organizations doing what we are doing, but we try to always distance ourselves from them by being innovators. May it be on technology or the way we manage human capital, but also from a geographical perspective, because we don't just focus in North America or Europe or APAC, we actually can do the whole lot. And you touched on the US there, often a dream to capture that market in particular. What has been your observations, Aurelion, in terms of running your business 
and particularly with your presence in the UK and US. Have you contrasted and compared between the two in respect of your firm? Another great question, Alan. You know, the US market is difficult. It's difficult for a lot of different reasons. From my perspective, and I'm not saying this would be the perspective of everyone, I'm going to start with the positive. I think you've got, obviously, a lot of investment going into the US market. There is a lot of money flowing in the US market, and you'll often have prospects who are a bit more open to take a gamble versus what you would find in Europe. On the opposite end, I think culturally, we have made the mistake of thinking that I would not consider myself fully British, but I've been living in the UK long enough to understand the UK culture pretty well. And I think I like it and I'm part of it. And I also have had the chance to obviously live in France, so understand the French culture. And the US culture, I think one of the mistakes we probably have made with my British colleague, because we started in the UK and my board is mainly, when we started mainly British and me French, we saw that, you know, US, UK is kind of the same way of doing business. And it's not. You know, you've got to get used to the culture. And what he took us, he took us sending one of our founders to the US to actually get the business started. So the investment was truly in time and having someone present there to really get under the skin of the culture, get under the skin of absolutely everything. I think the other thing that is also important to mention in the US is that it's probably... I find it more difficult to recruit talents in North America. And again, it could be me, the problem, not them. But I think that the market is really, really probably too wide in a way. And you've got lots of people that over the years of, at least with me, have been speaking a good game, but not really delivering. So, and it's maybe not a question of them not being able to. It was probably more a problem from us not being able to replicate the right culture, defining the right behaviors. And even to this day, Alan, because we're growing quickly for our service business, I think we've been growing 54% year on year. So every year we add 54% more people to the business. So we get to a point where it's very difficult to keep up with culture. What are the right behavior we want to see? And how do we get that to be trickling down from the leadership team? So what we come up with is a system where we do promotion from within. And I'm glad to say not only in North America, but globally, we've done 50 internal promotion over the last 18 months. So really moving the people internally from one job to the other and mainly into leadership position. So the way we've tackled it, North America is actually moving there, being there, being present there, but not just recruiting someone on the ground and relying on them to be our ears, eyes and mouth. Actually us being there and seeing it for ourselves. And then after a lot of mistakes, it's really working on the culture, making sure that we define a culture, making sure that we do a little bit like what Spotify does, making sure that the value of each team are the same across the world, not letting people dictate the value that they think they should have in one of the subsidiary. So we really feel as one unit. But yeah, for a while, we did feel like two organizations, and that was more challenging back then. That must be such a difficult job when you're trying to grow a business and indeed being very successful at growing a business at the rate of growth that you've experienced well above industry averages, if you pointed out, well above 50% growth per annum. Over the last 10 years, hundreds of employees coming on and coming through the business. You might not have had ingredients to start with to say, this is how we're going to do it, because I'm sure you would have learned along the way. But as you reflect on the decade of operatics and the achievements that you've made, Aurelian, what would you say is a couple of things that you would point to to say, look, because we focus on that, because we got these things right, 
they were the reasons why we gave the thing every chance of success. Well, it's two things really from my perspective. Let's not forget that we built the whole company to this day without a single external investment. Okay, so I think my business partner back then, because it was obviously sold the business before, so he had more money than me, basically, was able to put a little bit of money to get us going. For me, we did not take any salary for the first 18 months. And then we started to pay ourselves, but probably 50% of our market value. It's also the challenge was, how do you believe in what you are building when the stone is really difficult to push at the beginning and you don't really get paid for it? <laughs> so you work more hours for less money. So that was an interesting one. Now, I forgot about that because obviously we're 10 years in and we are successful and we are doing okay from a financial perspective. I guess the two things that I would say is be very honest and also close to your clients. And what I'm saying close is not close from a relationship perspective, but speak to them, understand their issues, question them consistently about what's happening in the market and try to come up with new ideas, new way to solve their problem. I think that's really a quality that we've got at Operatics. My whole management team, they are fixers. They like to help clients. And we've developed this very honest and uh, close relationship with our customers. And while the brands don't tend to be very loyal to us, because as you may know, in the technology space, there is lots of merger acquisition, people coming in and changing the whole thing. People move and they always take us with them. So we have clients that have been working with us for the last... 10 years of uh, five different companies and they introduce us to people all the time. We've got that word of mouth. We get more leads than ever through, through referrals, which is fantastic. So we're really building a brand around the fact that, okay, you may not get it right 100% of the time. You may not be perfect 100% of the time, but you are the most honest, the most hardworking, the most dedicated team that they can have. So people don't regret using your service. Even if they stop using your services, you want them to feel nostalgic about not working with you anymore. And you don't do that by any other technique than being very, very truly honest with them and very supportive and doing your best. So that's one thing that I would say is important for us. The second one is really around human capital. So we've got 200 and... I don't even know, actually, maybe 217 are people in the company. We're growing a lot at the moment. And every single time you add 50 people to an organization, you kind of need to change the structure, the management, the training slightly, the leadership around those individuals. And you've got cycle where every six to nine months, you kind of reinvent the way of running the people and managing the people. So human capital is so important to us, respecting the people that come into the business, truly helping them in their career, actually helping them out of the business, right? I was on WhatsApp today with one of our ex-employees who is looking for a job and he's been interviewing with a company that happened to be a client of us. And, you know, we speak about that. We spend a lot of time with our former employees and we've got lots of them in the market right now. And we've got this relationship, this long lasting relationship with employees. And, you know, Alan, what really I should have, I would change if I had a time machine is the fact that I would not be concerned anymore about losing talents. I think when you have a talent in your organization, you either offer them a platform to become an A player in your organization, or you just don't have the opportunity that they're really sick. And if you can't provide them with that opportunity, you have to help them out of your business. If they've been a good soldier, they gave you nine months, 12 months, 18 months of their life, 
They've been impeccable with your clients. They help you to achieve those fantastic relationships that you want to generate with your clients. If you come to the end of the road and they want to pursue a career that you can't offer them, you've got to help them to find a job somewhere else. And that's something that we only started three years ago. And I wish we would have started that from day one. I think at the beginning, we were a little bit annoyed when people left us because we felt like, you know, why would you leave the family? What's wrong with you? We we are very selfish, basically, in the relationship. And now we try to be less selfish and more emotionally intelligent about what's happening and the fact that they don't leave us because they don't like us. They leave us because we can't provide them what they need for the next stage and good on them. They are making the right decision. It's a perfect example of putting your people at the heart of your business and caring just as much about your team, your people around you, as much about your clients and your product. And actually, what you're saying, Aurelian, is something that we hear time and again from entrepreneurs about their achievements being a result of building a great team around them, of the hallmarks of their success being because it's not about them. It's about the people in their organization that have helped them along the way and have helped each other too. When you're looking at new team members coming to Operatics, what's the sort of things that you look for? What are the characteristics that you look for from a person who you might think be able to add to your culture and to the business? Sure. Um, so first of all, we do tend to do a lot of promotion from within. Okay. So in terms of my leadership team, these are people that I've known pretty well. I think, you know, the oldest employee in my leadership team has been with us for nine and a half years, literally from the beginning. And pretty much all of the others have stick with us for at least six, seven, eight years. So these are people that are really progressing their career with us. And it becomes easy, I guess, for the leaders when you are in my position, because I've recruited those people to be BDISDRs. I've recruited them to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, the organigram, right? They are the people who just pick up the phone or send email or use social to get meetings, do demos, sell stuff, prospect. And now they are my chief revenue officer. They are my VP of global marketing. They are my operation director running business unit that are two, three million pounds a year of revenue. They have full responsibility of their own PL. We give them complete carte blanche in their budget. Obviously, we give them a finance business partner to run their operation. But these are basically entrepreneurs within operatics, right? So we are a massive safety net for them because if they fail, we are here to help them, but we are mentoring them. So I think the relationship is a bit biased because I am privileged with the people that are in my leadership team because we have developed that sort of growing together type of thing. And we owe each other something that I think we really know and understand and value. And that goes beyond sometimes the professional relationship. Okay. So there is a thing of closeliness with that team. So that's one thing for me. In terms of the people around me, that would be one part. The other part, which has been the most challenging, is the people outside of the business supporting me. So I've never done what I'm going to do next week, next month, next year. It's new. Never been managing a company that big. Never had that many clients. Never had that many issues. So how do you learn? How do you get that? And as I mentioned earlier on to you, Alan, you know, I can't call my dad or my mom. It's not that they've been running business themselves. I don't really have anyone on my personal side because I'm still relatively young and I've got lots of friends who are doing well, but they are doing well in different categories. They may not be entrepreneurs. They may be doing very well in, in a larger structure. So how do I get advice? Who is my sounding board? Who can be the person that kind of motivate me or I can exchange some ideas, someone that can pick me up? Well, because, you know, supposed to be always happy. 
and I'm supposed to be always smiling. I'm supposed to be always finding solution. But trust me, sometimes you got to get picked up. And that's the part that has been the most difficult for me, finding the right person to support me. And particularly with the pace at which we've been growing, I think we've been kind of burning through people that get to a point where themselves, they don't know what's next. So they can't really help you. They can't mentor you. They've never been there themselves. But I'm glad to say that today and probably over the last year or so, I've met with one individual in particular. His name is Richard Fifield, and he's someone who's been very tremendous. You know, he's someone that I can call. He's someone that calls me. We've got a good relationship. He's actually now getting a little bit more involved in the business. But he's also someone who comes in to tame me a little bit. Okay, so I speak to him first before addressing the team because now it's a bigger group, so I've got to be careful. Before, when you've got 50 people, 100 people, it's okay. When you've got 250, you've got to be a little bit more careful. So I need to learn. I need to grow myself. And that is really helping. So finding that external type of mentorship, someone that you can have a relationship with, which is very similar to the relationship I've got with my internal guys, which is going maybe a little bit beyond professional. We actually like each other. I mean, I like him. Maybe he doesn't like me, but, you know, at least I like him a lot and I respect him a lot. You know, that is something that has been very difficult for me, finding the right people. And when I did not have those people, this is where I started to make the wrong decision, started to be displaying the wrong behaviors and yeah, starting to do the things. Have you found it to be a lonely spot at times, Aurelian? Yes. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, you know, when you're at the top, it's very lonely and stuff like that. I mean... I like it. So I think, you know, again, it's like the concept of fear. I think you've got to define what lonely means. I don't mind making a decision. I don't mind helping. I don't mind getting involved. And I don't mind making mistakes. In fact, I'm trying to develop that culture of failing is okay, which is something that I've learned in America a lot because they're bloody good at that. And they actually speak about failing very openly. And I think in Europe, we need to do a little bit more of that. So there is the concept of being lonely, but you always have people around you. And I guess to your point, yes, I have felt very lonely. And that's when I started to probably make the wrong decision. But now I'm not really lonely anymore because I think my leadership team is really picking up. And I've got lots of people around me that are much smarter than me. Very, very smart people. And they challenge me because we've got that relationship where I'm being challenged when I make decisions, which I love. So I would not consider myself too lonely anymore through external mentorship and my leadership team that is really growing in capabilities. But you are right. I have felt a little bit on my own in the past. I've not mentioned my business partner, Rob, with the yin to my yang. And we've been through everything together since day one, including the buyout of Graham, our business partner, which was very, very testing on us. So, you know, feeling lonely when you've got someone like him is very difficult. He's always been on call we've had the good the bad the celebration the sadness we went through all emotions so i should really mention him and talking about spending time with others and getting external input into challenges situations or problems that you might be facing as a business owner one of the great things that you're part of this year is ey's entrepreneur of the year program which is a great celebration i think of a community of British entrepreneurs and those that are doing some great things and being creative and innovative at the same time. Congratulations, firstly, for being a finalist this year, Aurelian. But why has that been important for you to take part this year? And I guess it'd be good to hear from you on any observations that you've taken from the program so far this year. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. It was an idea from my marketing managers think, you know, we would be lying to say that, you know, we're not trying to do some, a bit of PR and stuff like that. 
If I'm honest with you, Alan, I actually didn't like the idea to start with because I don't see the point of being in the spotlight. I don't really like, this is not where I come from. And I will always say that the business is not about me, it's about us. We discussed about it and I looked at it and the first thing that I thought was like, look, I am not special enough to be the entrepreneur of the year. I don't think we are good enough. I don't think what we do is high profile enough. I am sure that there are some people who are changing the world, etc., etc. And then I was met with my VP of global marketing, Katarina, who was a business development rep. So she's got a very interesting story, left Brazil to come to Europe and she started working with us as a BDR and now she's running all our marketing and first lady sitting at the board of operatic. So in six and a half years, which is pretty impressive and she's brilliant. She was like, she called me an idiot in that meeting. She was like, no, you're stupid. Look at what you've done for me. Look at what you've done for others. I think this is unique. I think you are changing the world. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> to this day, I don't know what to think about that. But she was like, look, I think you really need to do it because it's going to be useful for you. You need to elevate yourself and you can't be the CEO that just look at the company from the inside. You need to do more. And God, she was right. I mean, how many times she's been right? But on this one, I've got to say, Alan, that the experience that I've had through the process has been quite insightful. First of all, I never looked at my entrepreneurial journey myself. I mean, we grow, grow, grow. We go through things. We work out. We never tend to look in the rearview mirror. But that's the first time really that I've got people asking me about my entrepreneurial journey. So in fact, some of the things that I'm discussing with you today, some of the story, I'm becoming a little bit more fluent with the story now, but I never used to explain that story from being expelled from school to, you know, being where I am now. It's not something that I've really discussed with people, but also through my nature, I tend to be a little bit reserved about success. I like to speak about a lot of things. God, I'm talkative. You can probably see today I speak a lot. But I don't really, with my friend sitting from my education, I don't know where it's coming from. I'm not really comfortable speaking about me in a positive way. And I'm trying to learn that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the people I'm looking forward to meet in the process. So... As you say, we've got that retreat coming up. I've been looking at the list of CEOs that will be participating. And oh God, there is some very interesting people. People have used their product and very much looking forward to meeting all those individuals. But it's a great experience. It's a great experience. And for me, a massive learning in terms of trying to look at what we've done from an outside perspective, which to be honest with you, I've pretty much never have done before. And also looking at me from an external perspective, which again, through being a bit more reserved about that, I've never really done before. So yeah, going to speak to stranger about me is something that I'm learning through the process. And hopefully the stranger will become long-lasting relationship and people that, you know, will become maybe the next mentor, the next, you know, I can help them, I don't know. But I'm really looking forward to the networking and the community. Yeah, and that's great to hear. And it's just testament to the brilliance that is the program, which has been going for a number of years. And that, as you say, has developed a fantastic community and network that helps all of those that are part of the program. Erin, we could chat all day, but I just wanted to finish on one point that we speak to a lot of our guests on, and particularly those that have built businesses and have led companies throughout their career, and you continue to do so. What would you say is a sort of a key principle that you stick by in your leadership journey, if you like? What would be the thing that you would point to? 
I don't know if I can summarize it in only one, and you probably have lots of people answering you that way. So I'm sorry. I think if in terms of key principle, I think honesty is really important because, you know, coming back to what I mentioned to you earlier on about building up strong relationship with humans, may it be a client, may it be a partner, may it be a staff member, someone that you recruit, someone that is in your team, someone in your leadership team. Honesty and integrity are very, very important. You know, if you don't have that, you won't create this long-lasting relationship. People will find you out and, you know, it's not good. And I think another one that is probably more of a behavior is resilience. You know, don't give up. I mentioned to you the fact when we started Operatics, we didn't take any salary for a long period of time. I had my, she was my girlfriend at the time. She was paying for pretty much everything, which is the right one. But the doubt that you've got when you are really not earning money, trying to build something, clients are not really coming in at the beginning. You don't really know what you are doing, but you think it's the right thing to do. You think a lot about giving up and you should not give up. I think that's the thing. So you can fail and fail fast, but if you believe into something, you should not give up and be resilient and stay there. And on a day-to-day basis, you just want to work harder than a person sitting next to you. So I would say just two words, say honesty, integrity, in, a, in kind of honesty slash integrity, because I think they are very much linked from my perspective. And resilience are the two behavior qualities that have probably defined the journey here. Brilliant. Loved speaking to you today. Thank you for joining us. It's been a really interesting conversation. and I know all of our listeners would have enjoyed hearing from you. There is no doubt we'll be speaking again in due course and very much looking forward to that. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much, Alain. It was a pleasure. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Thank you.